as we explored last week, the classic Christmas story, Christmas Carol, while it has been covered from everybody, from Arthur Fonzarelli, who did a Christmas Carol, to the Muppets and Mr. Magoo, who's got a very interesting Christmas Carol, it was actually written by Charles Dickens um, as a quite, quite a reverent work. He wrote it, he said, in a sense, because he wanted to bring some glory to Jesus Christ. And it's so parallel, so many elements of the gospel. If you're willing to open your mind to this, I, I think it's so interesting. You know, at, at the end of the day, it's a story about change and it's a story about transformation. It's a story about greed and, and selfishness and death being overcome by change and new life. All of the possibilities that are in that. It's a story of redemption about the life and the soul of Ebenezer Scrooge. And, and, and while there's ghosts in it, it's not really a, a ghost story so much as it is about the spirits that are there to help him, and at the end of the day, if you will embrace the truth of this story, to help us wrestle with the things in our lives that kind of bind us and enslave us. And, you know, we know it's true at this time of year. Christmas brings up more emotion, right, than any other time of the year. Kind of all that stuff, whatever it is, it all comes up at Christmas time. Um, my kids the other day, it's just, I don't know, it's something about, it's something about Christmas time. Um, something about Christmas time. The other day, my kids threw on the old family videos, you know, and we're watching the old Christmas videos, and I'm crying, and uh, it just has power. So, we're looking at the stories of these four ghosts. I want to tell you a story about a kid named Freddie Bronner. Many of you know I was quite the athlete in high school. I've told you this many times over, and I do so with great pride. Many of you also know what place I finished in uh, the 400 hurdles in high school because I tell you regularly because I have massive pride issues. Frankly, it's one of the few accomplishments I have, so I go back to it on a regular basis. And while you would think I was quite the dominant athlete in my time, uh, Manoff High School, class of 97, while you would think I was quite the dominant athlete at the time, There was a kid that went to Mars Hills High School named Freddie Bronner, nicknamed Fast Freddie Boom Boom Bronner. And Freddie Bronner set not just the Morris Hills record, not the Morris County record, not the, the, uh, the New Jersey State record. Freddie Bronner set the national record in the 800 as a sophomore, where I think he ran, if you know anything about track times, I think he ran like a 148 or a 151. And I was the best 400 runner in my high school. And I took a lot of pride in that. Fred Bronner was the best 400 runner in the country. And because I was the best 400 runner at my school and Freddie was the best 400 runner at his school, we often got paired up at that last leg of that 400. And uh, because both of us had very good teams, it always came down to me and Freddie Boom Boom Bronner. Freddie Boom Boom Bronner owned me. Can I tell you that? I mean, he dominated me. He, you remember what Pedro Martinez said about the Yankees, how they're his daddy? I could hear Freddie Bronner as I got the stick, even if I had a big lead go, who's your daddy? Because he knew he was coming for me. I mean, he owned me. It was the last race of my senior year in high school, and it was us against, we were the two best teams in the county, and it was our team against Morris Hills. Only I can make a track meet sound exciting. But it was us against Morris Hills, and it came down to the 4 by 400 and it came down to me and Freddie Bronner. Well, long story short, I got the stick and I took off. And I'm 300 meters into this race and I'm thinking, I'm going to beat Freddie Bronner. Does anybody know Freddie Bronner, by the way? I've been looking for him ever since. You do? <laughs> you don't know him, know him, do you? Okay. But you've heard of him. His fame is his infamy. So uh, 
Uh, Freddie and I, you know, I'm, I'm leading the race. I'm going, I'm going to beat Freddie Bronner in the last race of my high school career. And then all of a sudden, I just hear this. <laughs> right by me. I mean, Freddie owned me. Never beat him. He was in my head. He'd keep me up at night. That's funny because, you know, we see it in sports all the time. But the truth is, there's something about that principle. You got owned, or I'm owned by this, which is true in a lot of places in our life. Men, with your struggle sometimes with, 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 um, with women, you know, you're just owned. You, can't, you really struggle like trying to be faithful. You're, I'm just, you're just owned by women. Food. Met with a friend this week that was telling me, explaining to me psychologically the power that food has in our lives, especially in some people's lives. They're just owned by food. Alcohol, clothes. One that I found recently that I really didn't know about was women in shoes. <laughs> I didn't realize how women were owned by shoes, but it's, it's like there's like a new, uh, a new, a new 12-step program for women in shoes. You know, there's these things in us that own us. Um, you know, they, they have our number. They keep coming back up in our lives. They wind up controlling way too much of our thoughts, way too much of our time. We, we just keep going back to them over and over. And so this morning, for Ebenezer Scrooge and for us, as we enter the story, the one thing that seems to have to own us, to have this kind of power over us, maybe more than anything else, is our past. Things that have happened to us, decisions that we've, we've made, seem to haunt us, seem to follow us. As much as we try not to think about it or just forget about it or move on, if we're honest and if they ever come up, we can't shake them, we can't get rid of them. Now, for most of us, there are moments in our past, if we could go back and change them and say, I would make a decision, better decision there, I wouldn't do that if I could go back and change it again, we would. But... We can't. It's always there. Sometimes we see it, sometimes we know it. Other times it just, we don't even realize the forming it did on us. And we're not even aware of, of how it's impacting us and how we're acting out of it. And, and it guides us. Our past can wind up guiding us and moving us, even without us giving it permission. It winds up controlling us. So with that in mind, and springboarding off this classic Christmas story, I want to talk about not just the ghost of Ebenezer Scrooge's past, but the ghost of your past. Who just got uncomfortable? Because this isn't a light story. Like, I know you might go, oh, you know, we're doing a Christmas carol in church. How light is that? This is not a light story. Now, in a room like this, there are stories of pasts. It's a heavy topic, right? And, and there needs to be healing brought to this. Each of you have a past that has something in it, that if you could do it over again, the first thing is you would want no one to know about it. And the second is if you could do it over again, you would really change it. So it could, here, do you want to know how your past can lose power in your life? I'll give you one way right now. It's open confession. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to the person to your left and start to share with them that one thing that you can't get past in your life, that deep issue. Go ahead. And see, we wouldn't do that. And there is truth to that, by the way, but there, there's also inappropriate sharing, and that would be some inappropriate sharing, right? And while we're kidding, the truth is everybody in this room has a past. 
especially when you get a room this size, there's going to be some difficult stories here. And these things follow us, and they have tremendous power over us in our lives. Because the truth is, please hear me on this, because I need you to hear me all the way through, and don't, don't just dismiss this, because our culture dismisses this all the time. Um, the truth is that in many ways our past has formed us and made us into the people we are. All of us, even the best of us, have broken areas in our lives, areas that have been deeply affected by sin. And here's what I mean by that. Some of those places have been deeply impacted by the sins of others, the sins committed against us, the sins of others kind of thrown up onto us, spit up onto us as people are caught up in their own sin, things that they've, they've put on us, committed against us, which have impacted us, sometimes horrendously deeply and dramatically. Some of us, choices have left us hurting or damaged or, or ashamed. And it, is a, it is a tough Christmas topic, right? But here's the deal. I want you to see that this is a story about Christmas. Because Christmas is, yeah, it's a story about a, a God coming in the form of a baby, but it's the story of God coming in the ba- form of a baby that, and a baby that was on a mission. In fact, it, it's rumored that Martin Luther once said that Jesus came as a baby contemplating the cross. And see, as God comes and he enters into our human experience, the old Christian mindset is that he's here to change your futures, and he is. But the truth of the scripture is that he's not just here, he's not just worried about your, your, your futures, he's here to enter into your past. God comes to enter into human experience, not just to change futures, but to redeem and to heal and to set you free from your past choices and the past sins that have been laid upon you. And this is just so huge. Because the older I get, the more time I spend time with Christ, the more time I study the scripture on this, the more I keep realizing how, how deeply broken I am in areas, how, how I act out of things based on stuff that was given to me, and how desperately I need God at work, not just in what's going to happen to me, but what has happened to me. So let's go back into this story if we can. If you're like me, prior, I wasn't a big Christmas Carol fan until I started this series. I'm blown away by this book. I'm telling you, if you're not reading this book or going to watch some of these movies, this is just so, this writing is so profound and it's so based on the gospel. I would have thought that Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, we all know Scrooge's character, and I would have thought Scrooge would have been the guy, if we went back and saw his, his, um, his schoolyard days, Scrooge would have been the guy, you know, the schoolyard bully. Scrooge would have been the guy that was taking people's lunch money. But, but Dickens makes it very, very clear on several occasions that is not what happened, that Scrooge wasn't always Scrooge. But he wants you to know that Scrooge was clearly a man shaped and formed by experiences and pain in his past. And so are you. So this promise first goes, this ghost of Christmas past comes to Scrooge. And we're taken, if you read the story, you're taken back to his early childhood days. And the first time you see young Scrooge, he's a young boy of maybe 8 to 10 years old. And you, you enter into a, a schoolyard and all the kids are outside playing. And they all know each other's names and they're teasing with each other and they're playing with each other. And then you're brought into a one-room schoolhouse and you see Scrooge sitting there by himself, all alone, on, on a, a wooden kind of a... Um, Bench, completely abandoned, no friends, but that he's so socially introverted 
that this has damaged him in some way so deeply that he has come to believe that he's in these stories. He reads the Arabian Nights. He talks about Alibaba. And he thinks that these fictional characters are actually friends of his. He's a young man kind of lost in, in this delusion of brokenness. And here's the second thing Dickens wants to make sure that you understand is that his social awkwardness, his, his reason for having to believe that he had made up friends, this inwardness is not his fault. He's been completely abandoned by his father, who sent him off to live in a boarding school. And, and a lot of the people say it was likely because Scrooge's mother died during his childbirth. And the loss of his mother built up such antagonism and resentment in his father that he didn't want to see his son anymore and just sent him off to this boarding school. His mother dies, his father puts him off, and it begins this history of pain in his life. And so while everyone that was in his life that should have loved and cared for him abandoned him, here's the truth in the room our eyes. Some of us know what that feels like. Not everybody in here was brought up by Warden June Cleaver. That's probably getting to be an old adage at this point. I should probably, well, I was going to move to Cosby, but that's not a good one either right now. So uh, <laughs> everybody wasn't brought up in the Brady, the list of Brady Bunch is aging out too. I got news. That's not all of our history. I mean, I know that. Some of us have felt what it's like to be abandoned by everybody that should have loved us, parents or spouses or children. And that's Scrooge's story. And in the book, the only one that really seems to care about him is his sister, Fan, who hasn't seen him in years. And he, he sees his sister. In fact, she knows very little of him because they've been separated. But in the story, when it picks up, all of a sudden he's a, he's a, a late teenager. And Scrooge is alone again as a young man in the boarding house by himself. And in comes his sister, Fan, with great news. He says, he says, Ebenezer, our father, he's changed. He's different now. He said that I could come to you. He's got a kind heart towards you. And Scrooge, you see, it's depicted so well in the movie, you see his face change. He has. And for a moment I thought, maybe this is going to be like a prodigal son story. Your father wants you home. And so Ebenezer runs out of this one-room schoolhouse, and he's thinking to himself, based on what his sister said, you know, maybe there's another chance for him. Maybe there's new life available with his father. Maybe he's not really all alone in the world as he thought he was. So the two of them run out of the schoolhouse, Scrooge, young Ebenezer, thinking he's going to meet with his dad. And I'm going to show you this scene. What I want you to watch is, watch as the pain, watch as the past, watch as the, the father wound gets administered again to young Ebenezer. You will see old Ebenezer coming in and watch his heart gets hurt. Darla, run this clip. There, boy, there. Stand still now. Let me look at you. They haven't been overfeeding you, that's certain. I've, I've grown, I think. Yes, most boys do. Fan has told you you won't be moving back here. Yes, sir. It's time you made your way in the world. I've arranged an apprenticeship for you. You'll move into Mr. Fezziwig's establishment in three days' time. Three days? Three days. I'd hoped we'd have my brother home for longer. Don't you think, Ebenezer? Three days is quite long enough for both. Quite long enough. You finished back there? All safe and secure, sir. The carriage firm. Into the carriage, boy. Fan pleaded for more time, but my father was very, 
stern man. Van. She died a young woman. She had such a generous nature. Yes, too young. Old enough to bear a child. One son. Fred, your nephew. Fred Hollowell, yes. Who bears a strong resemblance to your sister. Does he? I never noticed. You never noticed? The line that unfortunately got cut off there, she said, you haven't noticed because you have not opened your eyes. Now, I don't know if you could feel the little sting there. I think if you went to the men's retreat, if you were a guy, you know we talked a lot about father wounds and how those wounds own us a little bit. But right in the middle of the scene, you see that wound, that past coming and getting laid on young Ebenezer's heart. His past that would haunt him, not because of a decision he made, but because of the sin of others. Now, in the Bible, in several generations, Scripture speaks of a concept regarding the sins of the father. It's true in the Bible, and it's true in your life. You can't escape this. None of us have escaped this. It's a deep and profound truth about you. Now, hear me on this. Nobody in here is a purely self-made man or self-made woman. Now, I'm not, I'm not diminishing your successes or your accomplishments or changes that have been made in your life. This is not some socialist agenda I'm, I'm giving you. Uh, but what I'm telling you is that the scripture teaches very clearly by our past. It carries in us, and for, for many of us, a great, great weight. Let me show you one that, 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 that went on with Scrooge. Scrooge's father abandoned him because, uh, because he, his mother died in childbirth. And so that was it. He resented his son, and his son goes off to live uh, in this, this orphanage, this boarding school. Anybody catch uh, what unlikely died? Nephew. Fan, the only one with his nephew. Fan. His nephew's the one in the beginning that comes into the story. Oh, Uncle Scrooge, Merry Christmas. He wants nothing to do with his nephew. The sins of the father. Now, you might say that's all in the movies. Come on, where is that in real life? But if you know the stories in the Bible, you know they're almost all about this concept of generational sin and the impact on future generations. That's right. The scripture says Jacob loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors. Now, the other brothers knew that. Did that not impact them? Did that not impact their choices? Were they not wounded by it? Clearly being unfavored by the Father. Didn't that, in a sense, then drive them to make decisions based on sin, the sin somebody else committed to them, drove them to make decisions where they wind up partnering with the sin. And Joseph winds up in the bottom of a pit by the hands of his brothers. Now, where did that pattern of sin come from in his life? Well, it came from the generation before him, where Jacob's parents, where his father Isaac preferred the older son, Esau, while Rebecca loved the younger son. And on and on it goes. I don't know what you were handed, but I know you were handed something. Please don't think you weren't handed anything. Gentlemen, let me ask you. Let me make this real for you, okay? Guys in the room, let me ask you this question. Who taught you how to love your wife? See, the reason I'm not very good at loving my wife is my father, who I love to death and is a great father, is not very good at loving his wife. Who taught you how to love your wife? Ladies, who taught you how to define beauty? Who told you what was beautiful? 
Parents, who taught you how to raise your kids? Who taught you what was the right words to say? What would be the things that, that would be encouraging to them? That, that would be the right way to, to raise them? See, these, these sins, they're not done out of bad will by our parents. They, they were handed to them. This is not about beating anybody up. This is just about understanding the past and how it has consequences and how it forms us. Now, for example, my dad was very big on making men. He didn't want to be a man. Always, you've got to be a man. Um, I remember one time when I was five years old, my dad used to do this thing. He would take us out, and my dad was big. He was 6'5". He's about 6'3 now, but at one time he was 6'5". And uh, he would take his leg and he would swing it over our head. And I need to be careful with the communion stuff in front of me. And he would swing it over our head. And unbeknownst to my dad, one day when I was about five years old, we were at my grandmother's house and I had grown. And he picked his leg up and he swung it over my head and he batted me right in the side of the head. And I went down into my grandmother's gravel driveway and I came up crying. And uh, my mother wife, and then, and then I started yelling at my father and then my father was crying. And uh, I remember my father just saying, will you be a man? And, and, and he, he, we still have a running joke in my family. Courtney was in the first service. She laughed when I said this. But my father calls all of this part of our man training. And he, it's not of bad will. In fact, you know what I do? I do the same thing. And so in my desire to, to be a man, to win, to succeed, to be the tough guy, I have to win. I have to come at first. I have to succeed. I've got to make sure. See, something was done to me. The sin of others was placed on me. But then I start to make active decisions out of that because it's what informed me. Right? Just like all of the Bible stories. So, so I was one day working with uh, Bruce Terpster. He's, he's the DS here in, in, over our district of 100 churches. And he was coaching me on stuff in my life. And we started talking about these issues in my life. And I said, yeah, I got this children thing. I, I have to perform and I have to succeed and I have to accomplish. That said, guess who just won president of his class? <laughs> Same moment. I said, yeah. I'm passing it right down. Not intentionally. Not because I'm a bad dad. I think I'm a good dad. But this is, this is what's, because we live in a broken world and all of us have some form of brokenness. These things wind up getting passed down. The sins of others form us. Some are accidental. Others are less so. I know somebody quite well that, that was, as a young girl went to a Christian camp and wound up, wound up getting abducted and, and, and sexually abused and was found in a trunk by her parents. And because of the Christian culture of the 60s and early 70s, we don't talk about that. I saw about this was one of the guys still to this day struggling very deeply with that. Great looking guy. Oh man, he looked like, I mean, if you were going to picture some, boy, some kid you'd want to be your son, it would be this kid. And he said, I need to share my story with you. And he took me out and he said, uh, when I was young, my parents already were, were separated and they were both. My mother was a drug addict. My father was an alcoholic. He said, he got in another uh, relationship and he moved in next to my grandfather's house and he raised his new family next to my grandfather's house. And I, I wasn't allowed over there. I was only allowed to stay at my grandfather's house. And so be part of it. There, there'd be days where I'd be playing out in the front yard and I was alcohol issues. And, and he became known as the alcoholic in town. And he goes, and I remember one time we were playing football and all the kids started laughing. And I looked over and they were laughing because my father was driving the lawnmower to the liquor store. And he goes, you know, my dad, he told, he told me three times he tried to hang himself in the backyard as a young boy drug addict going into psychological counseling he wound up being taken away from his father as horrendous as this situation sounds at one point when he was in his teens his mother and and he both in a desire to to get more crack cocaine which was that we're on she began to prostitute him out to men so that they could get money for for crack cocaine and so this brokenness in his past while this is extreme 
He springboarded off it. But here's something he had decisions on his own. Apes us. But as you see it, you begin to no longer look at people like Scrooge or maybe a guy at the mission the same way. Because you start to look at Scrooge and maybe you have a little bit of pity. You start to understand that all of us have been impacted by, in some way by others in our past. So in a sense, and I'm not buying into the whole victim past, but it's too simple to leave it there because oftentimes we take the past and then we just springboard off of it and we actively participate in the brokenness, in the sin patterns that have already shaped us and we make choices decisions misinformed by that sin. So Scrooge has this brokenness in his life, but he goes to live with Fezziwig, and Fezziwig is this jovial character, and you'll see that at one point he meets this woman, Belle, and this, he just falls in love with Belle. And some joy moment, just for a moment, Scrooge is able to, we kind of put these two clips together and see what happens to Scrooge and how hard it is to get away from what's happened in the past. I forgot. Hello, Belle. Hello. Would you like to dance? Yes. didn't think so then. There was a reason then. There's been a change in you since you'll come to Fezziwig. <laughs> Are you in love, Ebony? It occurred to me. She's too good for you. One day, when I've made my fortune, then I'll deserve her. It was a night never to be forgotten. Never. But you did forget, often. Hmm? Look, another Christmas Eve, delayed by the pressure of business. Do you remember? No. Hello, Belle. I'm sorry I'm late. I thought you might not come. I know how busy you are. Well, the time of year and the nature of my business now that I use my time and opportunities wisely. A golden one who has displaced me. <laughs> Submerged into a master passion. Profit. The thought of money engrosses you. Perhaps I've become wiser. <laughs> but I've not changed towards you. Our contract is an old one. It was made when we were young and our prospects limited. How often I've thought of those times. If there had been no understanding between us, would you seek to bring to a marriage? You have no answer. You think I would not then? Oh, Ebenezer, what a safe and terrible answer. So characteristic of the careful man. Ebenezer, I release you. You are a free man, if you have chosen.
ghost went after her. Ghost carries no weight. Is Why? And you... Upon his death, my father left me a small inheritance. Belle wished to be married, insisting that we could get along on very little. But I wanted something more for both of us. So I lent out that money. Congratulations. The foundations for financial success. Spirit, show me. Hmm. Congratulations. Explained what you gained. Now I will show you what you have lost. The choices you make. I hope you'll be happy with the choices that you make. And these choices came for Scrooge out of, out of his own brokenness. When the last time you danced, Ebenezer? that will keep you from dancing and living and enjoying life like nothing else. There's so many biblical parallels in this story. You found a new idol, a golden one. You can't serve two masters. You can't love God and money. God's charge against the church at Ephesus in Revelation. You've forgotten your first love. Scripture with every... What you see happens to Scrooge is ascended down to them, informed decisions which result in choices resulting in their own sin, oftentimes leaving them paralyzed. Think of all of the characters in Scripture... Paralyzed with guilt and regret. Adam and Eve regret eating. Samson is regrets with Delilah. David is regrets with Bathsheba. On and on. Sin, regret. Peter and his betrayal. Jesus and, or Judas and his betrayal. Sins and regret. We make decisions, bad ones. Talking about causes for us in our lives. Great regret. I'm asking you to reflect for a moment on the big one. What makes regret so powerful isn't that we wish it had turned out differently. It's that we know if we had done something different, it would. And regret from your past can own you. I wish I hadn't left with her. I wish I hadn't listened to that. I wish that I hadn't said those things. I wish I had just said counseling myself, dealing with regrets about decisions, words, actions, thoughts that we wish we'd said. And since there's often no way back to fix those things, I don't know what they were with it. I'm going to conclude by showing you, Paul says, here's the story of your past and how to deal with it. He writes a letter to a church at Corinth, and this is a messy church, wrote them, the scholar at the church at Corinth is too dirty to tell a difficult letter, talking about what was going on in their lives, the sins in their past. It had to do with relational sin, it had to do with sexual sin, and he must have really laid it out for them. He says in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he starts by saying, verse 8, even if I caused you sorrow by the letter, I don't regret it. See, Paul's already over his regret because he knew what to do with it. Though I did regret it, I felt bad about it, Paul says. I see that my love were confronted by only for a little while. Choices. When somebody brings it up or touches it, or we even go to it, because often, well, often at times we repress it, I don't need to think about it, I don't want to think about it. But when we're confronted by it, it does hurt for a little while. Yet, even though I know I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended. Sorrow that they feel, the sorrow that you and I feel when it comes up, when we're found out, when somebody brings it up, that sorrow that you feel, God need to lose that. You are not following the godly path for change in your past. But if you would allow the sorrow to come in a little bit, God will use it. He intends sorrow to pay you back. You get over, Paul says this. He goes on in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He said, look, there are two paths. There are two things you can do with this sorrow. 
regret. There's no more regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. There's two types of sorrow. There's a godly sorrow. There's a worldly sorrow. There's two different kinds, and God will use one of them in our lives. The one of you we've done, when we see, when we look at our past, when we look at our decisions, and we look at them and see them the way God sees them, it causes us pain. We go, wow, I shouldn't have done that. It's a little while to get there. I was thinking that was not godly. I argue with my wife, you know who I think is right? Me. I can't be right every time. She reminds me of that in most of these arguments. But you know what? That wasn't godly. That wasn't right. I need need to take responsibility at some level for that. I disappointed God. Just disappointed. Now, a worldly sorrow says that. How often do we see that today? Like, I, I don't like to pick on pop culture figures, but I'll pick on one, mostly because I don't like the Yankees. But... Um, A-Rod has been the king of this, right? Then he goes and does it again, and oftentimes you start to say, I don't really think you're sorry that you did this. I think you're sorry that you just got caught. See, that's worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow says, I, I would still do what I did again. I don't think it was wrong. I'm hurt by it. About all the collateral damage it caused. Paul says godly sorrow takes one path. Worldly sorrow takes a different path. Godly sorrow does something. Darrell, put the chart up. Watch godly. This means that it brings something. It results into a different action. I now see in the past what I did, and I would do it differently. I've chosen, but see, here's the thing about, here's the thing about this. Because if not only see, you get godly sorrow right because of how bad your sin was, but it leads you to the place where you go, I also see what Christ has done, and he has removed that sin as far as the east is from the west. So let's me see how forgiven I am of this sin, how distinct I am from this sin, which leads you to this concept of salvation. It's not just seeing the wrongness, but Jesus from it, salvation from it. If sorrow is godly sorrow, and we repent, repentance leads to rescue and deliverance and salvation from all of those things in your past. It's incredible freedom. And then there's worldly sorrow. And worldly sorrow, I'm just sorry that I wasted no repentance. I wouldn't change what I did that way. And the pain of those past decisions. Have you ever seen a mother, see the pain that's been separated from her child because of worldly Eat away at you, eat away at you, eat away at you until there's an inner death and you lead, just lead a life full of regret. Danger came not just to, but to rescue you from a past and all of your regrets. Repentance always rescues stuff. I wish I hadn't let her go. I wish I hadn't stayed the night. I wish I'd never picked up the phone. I wish I'd never taken that drink. Some of you walk on something more. Out. See, there's a path out of that. It's places. And let me show you where it leads to. Paul says it leads to this. See what this godly sorrow will produce in you if you will, if you will look at your past. What concern, what eagerness to clear yourselves. What he says to the church in Corinth, because you followed this path, you're new people, you're changed people. At every point, you've proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. Now, you might be thinking to yourself today, you don't understand what I've done. Who wrote this letter? Paul, who should have been stoning regrets who started the persecution himself as he wrote this, was responsible for widows and orphans. Paul says that I can get free of my past. This is the pathway. This is the story. And from regret. I'm going to ask the worship guys to come up. 
We're going to take communion this morning together as we kind of start out this Christmas season. And as we do, I want you to see this story even in the communion story.